0: Welcome to Inside the Hive. I'm Emily Jane Fox. I am here with my trusted co-host, Joe Hagan. Hi, Joe.
1: Hello. How are you? How are you feeling?
0: I feel cautiously optimistic. How do you feel?
1: You know, I'm going to know better how I feel after I hear the interview that you conducted.
0: You sure will. We have the interview that you and I both kind of wanted, particularly this week, because we are nearing the year mark of all of this life changing world altering stuff that we've been living through and we have William Hanage who is an associate professor of epidemiology and a faculty member at the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics at a little known university called Harvard and heard of it it's it's in Cambridge it was a fascinating conversation where Professor Hanage, give the real state of the state, where we are now, uh, what we got wrong in the last year, and what we should be doing to look forward in the future. We talked all about the updated CDC guidelines that we got this week about sort of how you should behave if and when you get the vaccine. We talked about uh, all the myth and meth- uh, and messaging around the vaccine. We talked about the messaging about coronavirus and what we got wrong over the last year. It was really uh, news you can use. And it helped put everything in context, but it really was like a look at where we are now and where we're going to be. So it's it's less hand-wringing about what happened, and there's certainly hand-wringing to do, but it was it's practical. And I hope you guys will find it practical too.
1: My hope is that somewhere in the interview... He simply says, once you get the shot, you can tear off all your clothes and run naked through the street, and you're free.
0: I'll tell you that. He will not. (sighs) But go live and let live, brother.
1: Well, it's funny that this is happening now, because in my own just personal sphere, I'm seeing a massive uptick of people I know getting the shot. Today, in fact, as we speak, my wife is getting the shot.
0: Yay!
1: So, you know, having somebody in your home have the shot, that's a beginning. And... The CDC guidelines that just came out, I just got the headline, but it's like you can go inside of a building and take your mask off under certain
0: circumstances. You can can see – you can certainly see other vaccinated people. You can uh, see unvaccinated people if they're from a single household. When we're out in public – Wear your damn mask. Who cares? It's like the dumbest politicized thing that's ever happened in the entire history of the world. It really is. Like, it's just the... We'll look back
1: in embarrassment.
0: I'm I'm not even looking back in embarrassment. I am presently embarrassed for how little sacrifice it is. Like, you wear pants when you go out. You wear shoes when you go out. You... You do all the you wear seatbelt. It's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Wear your fucking mask. Who cares? It it does nothing to you. It costs nothing to you. It is the lowest bar to entry for safety that has ever existed, possibly.
1: It's almost like, uh, you know, there was another president before who was super awful and tried to politicize tying your shoes.
0: And then a bunch of people
1: are like, I'm not tying my shoes. Crazy. You know, and that's how dumb it is to me. But in yes. any case, in one any thing case. I want to say is it's it's worth just pausing for a moment. You and I have been doing this podcast roughly a year as well. And mm-hmm. it this pandemic began around the time that you and I started this. And it's easy to forget how uncertain the world suddenly became, how upside down, how traumatizing and suddenly the future just looked like a blank you know page and you didn't know where this was going and there was a intense feeling of well just the uncertainty of it and uh, we've come a long way in a year it's just shocking how much has happened and yes I mean we all kind of know this in theory but when I think about the beginning of our podcast together, and I think about specifically. I can remember one day the society was open, and the next day it was no longer open. And I know where I was. I remember what I felt, and it
0: was intense. Of course, it was. It was the most uh, unmooring moment of my life, and of all of our lives, I'm sure. And. Uh, You know, you lived in kind of at the beginning, you lived in an increment of two weeks and the shit you cared about closing for two weeks. Like I think back and I was like, how am I not going to go to Pilates for two weeks? Like I was so, or like, am I not going to browse a grocery store? I have not stepped foot in a grocery store for more than a year because I don't need to. And it feels um, like a risk that is unnecessary for us and our family right now. And uh, I have not been to a Pilates class outside of my makeshift gym in our house here. And, but, but the two weeks felt like so unsustainable. And then your tolerance grew to six weeks after that. And then six months after that. And then I'm preparing for another six months of, of life not looking totally normal. I am, uh, as of a few days from now, I am eligible uh, because of some conditions to get the vaccine and I'm getting the vaccine in a few days and I am very excited Congratulations, personally because I haven't seen my family in so long and I will hopefully get to see them and see you in April, Joe. Um, but I'm mm, also,
1: that is going to be a big moment,
0: huge, but I'm also really excited as a member of the community to, to do this, and we talk all about community in this interview, and and it's so interesting because I had a bunch of questions about why they didn't update the CDC didn't update um, the guidance on travel because it seems like if you're vaccinated and and we know that flying on an airplane hasn't posed a huge significant risk in terms of getting COVID, um, and I asked why they why they didn't update that, and his point to me was epidemiologists and public health. Officials aren't thinking about the individual who wants to go on a trip or go visit their family. They're thinking about what this means for community spread, and right. it makes logical sense. But but you sometimes forget that we as human beings are hardwired to think of the individual and not the community, and and you override that human nature because you want to be a good member of society. But. Uh, they spend all of their time thinking about the community and not the individual. And I think that that is something that we should all strive to do a little bit more.
1: I care about my community. And uh, <laughs> I, I know live where in you a going. small. I live. <laughs> um, there are other communities that we need to talk about who are also, well, I mean, from what I can tell anyway, suffering in their own way.
0: On our community, our, our hive community cares about this deeply because we've heard yes, from a number it's, of you.
1: It's one that um, we've been asked specifically by listeners to address. And, of course, it is the issue of the royal family.
0: That interview—wait, Joe, can you just make the point that you made— we have a a weekly news meeting every Tuesday, and uh, I believe you tweeted it out too, but you made a very good point about uh, what this moment meant, that this sit-down with Oprah and Meghan Markle marked— An end of an era and a new dawning of another one. Will you elucidate?
1: Absolutely. And it makes so much sense that Oprah would bring it to
0: us.
1: (laughs) Um, My point was basically this. You know, we, on this podcast, episode after episode, talked about how all-consuming the former president was to all of our lives, and he consumed the news. Uh, He was the news, right? There was one headline every day, and it was whatever— horrible thing this person was saying and doing and we thought that the one day the news cycle would break away from that right and when he lost his twitter handle that was a big moment and we now suddenly we are finally breathing and the first sign of that to me or one of the big signs of it is everybody suddenly cares about an interview with one of the royals and the mishigas and the royal family That wouldn't have happened six months ago or even six weeks ago, right? We had a coup, you know, two months ago and now – an attempted coup. And so now uh, suddenly, to me, this is a really good sign that we can now focus on and think about anything we want, right?
0: Hallelujah.
1: The fact that everybody was so riveted to this interview, to me, was a sign that there was like a news ecosystem that would allow such a thing and that I was grateful for it on that level. And then, you know, below that is the actual substance of the interview, which is interesting also. And that's where I feel like I would really want to know what you thought of that interview, because Oprah was heralded as like, whoa. She's got some chops as an interviewer. There is no doubt about it. She's a powerhouse. At the same time, she was chosen to be the interviewer by these subjects. They didn't just give this access to anybody, right? So was it a successful interview? And what were they setting out to do?
0: Okay, I have a lot of thoughts here. This moment, you have to know, I was the child that you expect I was in that I was obsessed with news as a kid. There was never any doubt that this business was going to be what I did because I was the nosiest child who ever existed. And I was obsessed with watching these kinds of interviews. I would, all of my friends in elementary school every single Friday went ice skating at this ice skating thing. And like, you would hold hands with boys and you would get french fries and whatever. And I would opt out to watch 2020 and Dateline. And every (laughs) single day- My mom can attest to this. I know she's listening. I would get home from school. I would do my homework. And every single day I watched the Oprah Winfrey show. Every single Mm -hmm. day at four o'clock Eastern. And this moment was so important to me and so central to who I am. And I rarely ever watch anything that meets the hype. And I actually think that this over-delivered. I was watching it with my hand over my mouth. I could not believe that they went there. When do you watch someone who's famous, who actually like gives you the goods in a sit down interview, you usually get teased and teased and teased. And they like may say mm-hmm. something that you could bend into newsworthy. Like this was, the goods were delivered. There are a couple of things, and I say this as like the greatest Oprah stan. I literally watched her my entire life, and I think she's like a large part of why I do what I do. Um, I found it a little bit rich that Meghan Markle was deriding the palace's relationship with the tabloid media in the UK when they opted to give an interview to someone who is their friend. Or at least their acquaintance, and and by the yes. way, there's nothing wrong with with them having a relationship with her. I think Oprah was very transparent about that fact. I think they were both very transparent about that fact. It was no secret that they have a relationship. I also think it's uh, as a savvy consumer of of news, you should know that when these big interview happens, and I don't know what the discussions were in this specific case, but generally there are lots and lots and lots of conversations about what you're going to talk about. And they said at the beginning of the interview that nothing was off limits. And I choose to believe them. And I actually think they went everywhere. Didn't seem like there were a lot of things that were off limits here. But I don't think that there were like anything that, there was nothing said that Oprah could have been shocked by because I would imagine that they have discussed this before that interview. So I thought that was a little rich. And then the other thing I will say is that while there was so much news and while Oprah's greatest skill in this interview was making them feel comfortable enough to to tell these things and then giving very helpful summaries of of why what they said was so important and kind of weaving everything together, that was very helpful as a watcher. Uh, But she missed an opportunity to ask a few questions. Mm -hmm. I think, namely whether Harry thinks the monarchy should be abolished. Uh, that's a huge one. I obviously think he would have said no, given how respectful they were to Her Majesty the Queen and how they both referred to her as that and, and were so clear that she has been nothing but supportive to them. So I think we knew sort of between the lines what his answer would be, but uh, I would have loved to hear him say that. And then the other thing, I wish she had asked him if, she, if he you know, had thought about the history of racism and anti-Semitism in the royal family. Mm-hmm. It is so long and it is right. uh, not in the past, obviously. And so I wish that she had said to him, you're making these allegations about racism that your son had, had faced. Put that in context for the racism that your family has been dispelling for the last, you know, hundred years, however long the royal family, I don't know. I don't, I'm terrible at Whatever forever that yeah. they've been in power.
1: Well, just to, to to pluck one out, there was King Philip's brother who, yes. you know, went and uh, canoodled with the Nazis back in the uh, in the forties. How and, about his um,
0: grandfather, who whose sister was a Nazi, or sister and her husband were Nazis or Nazi adjacent? It's not you're not going that far back.
1: No, they're still and alive. And these were secrets that were, as we know from the crown, that were sort of uh, you know. Uh, repressed and, uh, you know, buried for a long time. And when they finally came out, they had to contend with it, right? And in a way, this is a different animal, but it is also them once again needing to contend with their own history of not just the racism, but the colonialism, the the horrible racism inside of the, you know, that is the sort of hallmark of the colonial uh, empire that they once were.
0: If there was nothing off limits in this interview, and I choose to believe that that is true, it feels like a miss because the Meghan, Harry, Archie, William, Kate, Charles stuff here was like the best plate of potatoes you could ever get. Mm-hmm. But the red meat is in that, right? The colonialism, the racism, the anti-Semitism, right. And if you really want to... Uh, make a difference in the royal family, then that's where Oprah would have gone. I don't think that that's what the intent of the interview was, right? Their their intent was not to actually reckon with the problems of the royal family, which would have been, perhaps the more noble thing and any of the knocks that Megan and Harry have received since then, which, you know, I think overwhelmingly it has been positive, but I think when you dig a little deeper, there have been some knocks and I think that that would have eliminated any knock because the why of why do this is a little ick, right? There's, there's no doubt. I'm happy they did.
1: You pointed out something that I think is important that Oprah did not ask them. And this is if gets down into the core of the situation, the nuclear core, which is that she should have asked them, do you think the royal monarchy should exist? Why do we even have it? You know, what is the point of it anymore? And because that would have put them in a very interesting bind because, you know, they are, and correct me if I'm wrong, salaried, you know, members. Not anymore. Still but is that where did they get their money uh
0: well the actually the the ickiest part of this to me was them talking about their money problems uh, not because I think that they are obviously two of the most privileged people on the planet um, mm-hmm. and not because I think that they still have a lot of money because it kind of felt like when you hear to me when you hear prince Harry talking about how he's been cut off and how uh you know they're really subsisting on the money that Uh, Diana had left them and and now their Netflix deal and their Spotify deal, it kind of felt like you going to your high school reunion and you seeing your, like the quarterback of the football team. And he's like talking about like the glory days. It kind of had that feeling to me, it just felt a little like pathetic. And I don't, I don't, maybe that's, that's me.
1: I they must be doing okay they if they're are. living in Oprah's neighborhood and the whole concept of like let's do the interview in the chicken coop was to me a little bit uh, gilding the lily a little you know they're tr- they're trying to kind of like plead that they're, they're it's a choice earthy now it's a choice jo- and
0: and look I think that their life is very different now than it would have been had they stayed in well, the past sure but
1: I mean I mean this gets to the point now I you corrected me there and i'm glad because i don't i'm not an expert on the royal family but you know uh it is another fascinating chapter of this and an aspect of this is that Meghan markle herself uh, is not and we haven't even talked about the fact that this is the reason people are talking about this and the reason it is so It's kind of an interesting story, is the race aspect, okay? I get that. But she's sort of um, a complicated figure in all of this. You know, she's not a saint. And uh, I'll only tell you, uh, dear listener, that you should go and uh, read uh, Vanessa... Gregoriadis, who is one of our our very fine uh, contributors at Vanity Fair and is a fantastic reporter. She wrote a piece a couple of years ago called Inside the Markle Family Breakdown. And she's written other pieces, maybe last year for New York Magazine. But her coverage of the Markle family will add a whole extra layer onto your understanding of her and, you know, the sort of complications of what you saw on screen with Oprah there. um, Because there's sort of like these are very aspirational people, you know? I mean, she's an aspirational person. And, you know, she knew what she was doing when she aimed the Oprah cannon at the royal family. Um,
0: sure. And, and by and the way, you don't need to be a saint to be able to say, like, these people were incredibly racist towards me and sure. my child. And, and, I, be- and-
1: I, I totally, I, I'm, I saw that the emotion was real and that this appeared to have happened and, you know despite these denials by the Prince Williams this week, uh, saying that, you know, that they're not racist. I'm sure or something like this did happen. Um, I'm just saying Vanity Fair has done some really excellent coverage of the Royal family that will make it more of the complicated drama that you want.
0: It's, it's, it adds the nuance here. And I think that sometimes, I, I actually think that all the time now we don't have nuance and it's, because so much is immediate and knee jerk and online that we don't take the time to actually like look at the shades of gray. I think my takeaway, and I think that you're with me, Joe, correct me if I'm wrong there, is that the Royal family seems to have treated their own family in a way that is completely unacceptable and their, and, and as employees, it was beyond unacceptable and at the same time, this interview was a little bit opportunistic is not the right word, but a little bit ick to me, and that that uh, these people have their own motives for doing things that aren't totally clear right now, but I think that they're clear that they exist. And both things can be true. And I think Absolutely. it's okay and to live in that. The second
1: wave of people's interpretation of this story will bear some of this out. I mean, it's going to get more complicated as Buckingham Palace begins to add their part of the narrative, and it's just going to get more twisty and turny.
0: I hope, as family, they resolve this. There are children being brought into this world and raised in this world, and you never want to hear of internal uh, family strife. It's sad. I'm sure it's sad for every member involved. Um, I hope that they resolve it, and I hope we get to see a a window into that resolution (laughs) along the way, because it is really lovely. And, and... Above everything else, I'm just so glad that we could spend the last 20 minutes talking about this. As you said at the very beginning of this conversation, who would have thunk even a month ago that something would capture our attention this way that had nothing to do with U.S. politics, had nothing to do with the coronavirus. It had nothing to do with anything except for pure, uh, nosy speculation, an ocean away But that doesn't mean we should forget about all the important things that are actually happening in our own homes, backyards, uh, families. And I think that that is what we're going to offer you here at The Hive, a mix of fun, off news, gossip, and an interview with a Harvard epidemiologist who's going to tell you everything you need to know about where we currently stand with the coronavirus. You know, he is... He is British. I really missed my opportunity to ask his feelings about this interview and about the royal family, but uh, I guess his time and brain was better spent talking about all the things that we talked about.
1: Well, I have a lot to learn and I can't wait to hear.
0: Let's get to it. Hi, it's Radhika Jones, editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Professor, I am just so happy that you are here because I think as we round this full year mark since all of us really started feeling the pandemic, I have so much to ask you and I want to jump right in. You're a very busy man. Can you just give us a state of the state where we are right now with the coronavirus and all of the developments that we see happening and all the things that still have yet to happen. What's the landscape as we live it right now?
2: It's a great question. Um, Right now, we are in a point where we have managed to get through the first full winter in the Northern Hemisphere of this pandemic. And we are in a position where we have multiple vaccines, which are very good at preventing serious disease and hospitalization. But we've not necessarily managed to get those vaccines into enough people that we can entirely relax. And I think that's a fairly key point at this stage. We've also hopefully, well, I would like to think that we've learned a lot about pandemics over the last year, but I think unfortunately we've learned a lot about how human beings respond to pandemics and mm. you know how politicians respond to pandemics and it's not always exactly what you might have hoped um, but right now we're in a relatively good position because we have the vaccines but you know a vaccine in a vial is not doing anything it's not saving anybody it needs to actually be in a person and that's going to be a process
0: absolutely I want to stop you right there and just ask you what have we learned about how humans behaved? in this pandemic that is different than what you would have expected a year ago when all this started?
2: I think most of us expected that the most of us, meaning epidemiologists, yes. uh, expected that there would be a situation when institutions would recognize that, you know, even if they didn't want to at first, that a certain number of things were required in order to prevent the worst outcomes but actually, there was quite a high tolerance for amount of hospitalizations and deaths, at least in large parts of the world. Mm. And I'm mostly talking about the United States here. But, you know, we have seen it playing out in other places as well. But at the moment, let's just think about the situation where we are right now. In I'm in the northeast of the United States. And around here in Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, Rhode Island, in all of those states, more than one in 500 residents have died already. Mm. The corresponding number for New Zealand is one in a million. Mm. So that really illustrates the difference between the things. Whether or not things could have been handled better or worse is another question, and one I'm sure we'll get into. But we it's been quite surprising how limited the will was to try and make things better.
0: Do you think that some of this was... I mean, I think so So much of this was the messaging, right? from both government officials and health officials. It just was from the very beginning, the messaging was very confusing. It was both scary and hard to follow. And Mm. I'm wondering if you could go back and re-message this whole thing, would you take the time to sort of, I feel like so much of the emphasis was on restrictions that were necessary, but, but a lot less on explaining how this virus actually spreads. And I feel like I talk to very smart people all the time now who I think read a lot of news who still don't totally seem to understand how this virus is communicable. And it's shocking to me until I start to think about how bungled the whole messaging was. So I'm curious what you would go back and redo if we could turn back time a year ago.
2: I I think you're absolutely right. The messaging has been really confused and confusing. And part of that is some of that has good reasons. For instance, things about masks early on were genuinely rooted in a concern that people working in healthcare would have sufficient masks to protect themselves. Right. Um, And some of it was not. Some of it was just people wanting to say things, lots of different things, and then people could pick and choose what they want to believe. I think the best way to think about it is to convey not only a set of kind of sterile rules for what you can and cannot do, but educate people about how the virus is actually transmitted and all the things that can be done to drop the risk. So the upshot is, this is a virus which spreads via the respiratory route. So that means that people breathe out particles which contain the virus. And those particles um, are more likely to spread to somebody who is close to you And not only close to you, but close to you for some time. Mm. So there's that time element, you know, brushing by somebody in a corridor not wearing a mask is, or even outside not wearing a mask, is very, very different from sort of sitting next to somebody talking for 10 minutes or more. I mean, it's, it's a real difference. So I would think that that's a better way to do it and to convey to folks that we are not only about trying to restrict what you can and cannot do, Um, I think that the messaging should have been tied together with resources, things that would help people be able to do it. I mean, I know we've talked about masks a lot, and masks became a toxic political issue. But if everybody in the country had been given a decent quality mask and instructions for how to use it, that's giving people power. That's giving people information they can do stuff with. Mm. Likewise, rapid antigen tests, Rapid antigen tests that can tell you whether or not you're infected and infectious really quickly is another piece of information that we could have made a lot better use of. And unfortunately, we didn't. But I think the most important thing is to just let people know what the risks are. And that actually includes something else, which is how we conceive of risk. Mm. Because human beings are very bad at some things like, I don't know, levitating, and <laughs> um, and risk. Thinking about risk, we we are we are often talking about something being safe um, or not safe, and it's pretty simple, although not well understood, that in a lot of cases, that's just the wrong way to think about it, because this is a transmissible disease. So even if you are unlikely to be badly affected, that's not necessarily true for the people you infect. Of the transmission chains that persist. Mm. And you may be very unlikely to have the worst consequences of disease, but it's not a zero risk even for younger age groups. Um, it's still unclear exactly, but you know, we've seen some estimates that the proportion of cases that lead on to something like long COVID is about one percent. In general, we need to think about this in terms of you know, conveying to people that things are not risk-free. Think about it like in terms of schools. People often talk about schools being safe. Well, it's very difficult to make any environment completely zero risk of transmission. Sure. But there are so many things we can do which make it much lower risk of transmission. Mm-hmm. Ventilation, masks, and so on and so forth. And if people just felt about it more in terms of that, I think that we'd have been in a far better place.
0: I think that you're totally right. And I want to I want to ask you about you know, we go about our day-to-day lives and we are, what are we at? About 60 million Americans have gotten at least one dose of a vaccine. Mm-hmm. And as you said, the vaccines are highly effective, even, even after one dose, though, a number of the vaccines require two and that's great. Uh, we are every day going about weighing these risks and, or at least we should be. And you brought up schools and I think that that is one of the most uh, important risks that we are going to have to weigh. But but right now, with the numbers of cases and with the number of people who are currently vaccinated, can I just ask you about a couple of other scenarios and what you would feel comfortable with in terms of sure. risk? Sure. So I'm just going to name a few and you tell me what, what you think. Eating outside at a restaurant, eating inside at a restaurant, taking the subway, getting a haircut and going to the Super Bowl.
2: <laughs> um, now. Are you talking about people who, those in case of people who have been vaccinated or not vaccinated or just in general?
0: I would just say the general public, what would your advice be at this point? Or or is it just, it really depends on if you're vaccinated or not vaccinated? I think
2: it, it completely depends on if you're vaccinated or not. Um, I would personally shy away from most of those things right now. And, and, yeah. and let me explain why that is. Um, if you look at the country's case counts right now, They're either flatlining or going up a little bit in a lot of places. Um, We did see a really precipitate fall in cases after the start of the year. And that's not that surprising because coronaviruses do tend to peak at that time anyway. Mm. It's probably to do with the contacts that people make over the holidays. And then people go back to their everyday lives and the virus runs through those households. And then it goes back to where where we were before. And that's where we are now. What that means is that every person is, on average, infecting about one other person. That's the explanation for those flatlining case counts. Mm. Now, once you change those things to do all the stuff that you're talking about, then it starts to drive it up. So they infect more than one other person. And now we're back in, in the realm of exponential growth. It won't take off immediately, but it will eventually lead to more and more cases. So while those things that you just described... They might be pretty low risk, depending on where you are, um, in a lot of places. However, if everybody does them, then suddenly we're back in a situation where we're getting a hell of a lot of transmission. Mm. And you don't take a lot of infections among those age groups that are most at risk to be really making life very difficult for healthcare. These age groups are very, very vulnerable. And even though it's great that so many have been immunized by now, it's still plenty who haven't. And I think we need to think about them in particular because they may be in groups that find it more difficult to access vaccination.
0: Well, that makes a lot of sense. And I think uh, that makes sense if you're someone who is a member of community and does not only care about themselves and and maybe the immediate people in their household. But I think what we've realized now is that... um, there's a little bit of a, an empathy gap in caring about people who, are um, maybe not <laughs> the empathy <ourselves>. gap.
2: Yeah, <laughs> that's. I think that. I think that could be a whole. That's a whole new podcast.
0: It it sure is. What you're what you're talking about leads me to think about the new guidelines of the CDC issued this week, uh, and they were particularly geared towards people who have been vaccinated. And they were really hopeful, to me at least. I'm wondering what your take is about the guidelines and and what we should all take away from from what the CDC said this week.
2: I see them as a cause for hope too. I mean, I think it's something which will hopefully encourage people to be vaccinated when they get the opportunity. I think that it indicates what the way forward may well look like. I think that um, as time goes by, we're going to have increasingly the opportunity to be getting together in gatherings of people who are completely vaccinated or mostly vaccinated. Now, those will still not be, here it comes again, zero risk, because we know that the vaccines are very effective, but they're not 100% effective. However, if the population as a whole has a very low exposure to virus, if there's just not much of it about, then you can rely on that to protect People whose vaccine has not taken for whatever reason, or who may have been unvaccinated, if they're in a small group in, the, in there. So I think there's a lot there to be excited about. The question of when we're going to get to that stage where it's going to be very easy to make those kind of contacts. Well, that's actually, I think that's a couple of months off, at least, possibly I was, more.
0: I was going to we, ask you this because you tweeted earlier this week. You quoted from a piece that essentially said anyone who confidently answers that they know how long the pandemic will continue is guilty of hubris. And I totally understand why we might not know when this peters out. I fully get that. But can you help guide me to know how we will know when we reach that point? How will you judge that we are in the clear?
2: Uh, It's a great, great question. Um, the statement about people confidently asserting they know where this is going to turn out, being guilty of hubris, is absolutely true. We can, however, be pretty confident about some of the outline scenarios. Some of the things that we can be pretty certain are we are confident about. I was listening to actually, just for the sake of context, I was listening to a friend of mine giving a talk earlier today who made... An point about the difference between being qualitatively right and quantitatively right. So qualitative is just when you have got the the outline of it correct, and quantitatively is saying exactly what the details are. We can be qualitatively clear about what's going forward, but not quantitatively. Qualitatively, we can be sure that we have enough people still vulnerable in the United States. That a return to the pre-pandemic scenario would risk a catastrophic surge. So, how long are we going to have to be, you know, hunkering down in order to avoid that? And the answer is a bit complicated, because we have a couple things going on here. First, there is increasing rates of vaccination. That's going to help slow things down. We also have a number of people who are immune as a result of infection, and that's that's good, um, at least for them because they've recovered and they're immune sure. but that immunity is going to wane. We don't know exactly how rapidly it will wane but they those people should also be looking to get vaccinated. Mm. It's also the case that we have these new variants which are beginning to circulate and one of them B117 is known by now, we're very confident that it's much more transmissible. Well, it depends what you what you count by much. It's about 60% more transmissible than the previously existing virus. Mm. So that all goes together to say that we're gonna be we've got a pretty crucial few months ahead of us, which have the capacity to be really quite worrying, but may not be as well, because we have the situation of seasonality. The weather's going to be getting better. Right. People will be making more contacts outdoors. That also is going to drive down transmission. So if you want to watch this like a pro, you're going to be looking towards what's happening towards the end of the summer as the seasons change and more opportunities for transmission and doors come back, come back in. So that, and when we start seeing there, if cases start to increase, in particular among people who haven't been vaccinated yet.
0: Well, can I ask you? A, maybe this is a dumb question, but if you believe President Biden that there will be enough vaccines available by the end of May, and let's give him an extra grace period that that he has until June for that to be the case.
2: Are I you? Think that, yeah, go ahead. Go on. I, I think that those are there may be vaccines available. In particular, Johnson and Johnson is going to be a very, very good additional supply and it's uh, been reported also that merck is going to be helping JJ produce vaccine i think that numerically that may be the case um practically it may not be now i'm not an expert in like i'm not an expert in supply chain so i don't want to get into that too much but i will observe that at the moment we don't have the we don't have sufficient access to vaccines mm. to get vaccines into everybody who wants them so it's going to be quite difficult to actually make that happen. And of course, there is a significant issue in the country with vaccine hesitancy, sure. folks who are not going to be wanting the vaccine. Um, that number I told you um, when I was talking about the variants earlier, B117. because that variant is more transmissible than the viruses that went before, that means we need to vaccinate a higher proportion of the population to control. The to control the virus. Um, and that's going to make it even more difficult. So President Biden may be accurate that there will be enough vaccines for everybody who wants it, but not enough people may want it. And it may be difficult to get it to the people who do want
0: it. I see. So, so the combination of those three things, the vaccine hesitancy, the supply chain Woes and the fact that there is this variant that's going to require more people to be vaccinated. The combination of those three things are what could lead to a potential uptick in the fall if we don't figure those three things out. Is that right?
2: Yeah, that's right. Or indeed before the fall. Got if it. Um, we there's a lot of things which go into um, infectious disease epidemiology. Um, it's like the transmissibility per contact, the number of contacts that are made, whether or not the contact is already immune. For whatever reason, and how those things change over time. So all of those things are going to be going into the mix, and we're going to be, need to be watching really closely.
0: Sure. I want to talk to you about the vaccine more in depth, but I have one more question that my editor really wanted me to ask you. So I'm going to honor Miriam and, and ask the question. The CDC, when it updated its guidance this week, it did not update its guidance when it comes to travel, and it still only limits people to taking essential trips. Why do you think they didn't update this?
2: Yeah, I think it's largely a part of, the, of an inclination to be small-c conservative at this stage mm. um, and, to, um, and to be taking baby steps. When it comes to travel, travel is actually one of those things which is really difficult to get right. Um, you know, a person who is completely vaccinated moving between places which have similar amounts of disease really is something not to get terribly worried about. In fact, in general, movement between places with similar prevalence of diseases should not be something we get terribly anxious about. But I do think we are still somewhat concerned about the potential for movement to be spreading variants, introducing Virus to parts of communities that have not yet been mm. um, have not yet been exposed, and you know we do not know that people have been vaccinated. It's very difficult to know that for sure, and so you don't want to be encouraging people to be taking risky actions at a point when we could actually be within a few weeks, maybe a month, of getting serious control over this, and then you know taking the lid off the pot too quickly and everything just boiling off, boiling over.
0: I see. So it's not that there is a tremendous personal risk to someone who's been vaccinated but there could be a community risk not knowing what the, the virus is like in that community or the community you're coming from that that's right
2: yeah I mean this is the thing about um, infectious disease epidemiology it's all about communities mm. people tend to think about things in a fairly individualistic way but the thing about infectious disease is that it transmits. And so, you know, you may be fine, but the person you infect may well not be.
0: Sure, that makes total sense. Let me ask you about the vaccine. There were a number of highly effective vaccines developed, tested, and brought to market within a very short period of time. It's a, To me, it's a wonder. It's truly miraculous, it's an incredible thing, but so much of the messaging around it has not focused on that achievement. Um, And so much has been about hesitancy, about its true effectiveness and whether it will protect against variants and which vaccine may be most effective or least effective, what the restrictions you'll still need to abide by. Do you think we message the vaccine correctly if it is so important for for this country to be on board with it, knowing how hesitant many Americans are about getting vaccines in general?
2: I think the messaging around any vaccines is crucial. Um, And I think messaging around this is quite difficult. It's not actually a situation that many people have much experience with because there weren't vaccines around during the last kind of big respiratory disease pandemic. And so we have a situation where we're trying to juggle the fact that, yes, we've got a vaccine, but no, because we are unable to instantaneously immunize everybody in the country, it means that there is this kind of period of limbo in which some people are vaccinated, but not enough are in order to be able to rapidly move past it. Mm. And I think a lot of the messaging has, made, has been holding around that. Yeah. I think because it's trying to say to people, okay, this is good, but got to be cautious. But then you have the situation like you describe where some people are saying, hang on, We've got vaccines now. What was all that for? But you're completely right. It is an astonishing human achievement that we've got in this country now, not one, but three vaccines, which are all capable of preventing severe disease, hospitalizations, and so on. Mm-hmm. And that is that in and of itself should be cause for celebration. But I would celebrate in a small group <laughs> of you know, with your household for now. <laughs> that's, I think that's what I'd recommend right now. That makes um, sense. And then later on in the summer, we can get together outside and celebrate and then come the fall, if things look good, then we're going to be probably, I think that's going to be a point when we're going to be able to be really much more confident about exactly where we
0: are. I want to ask you some specific questions about the vaccine that I think uh, people are still a little hesitant about. I'm curious your take. Is there a big difference between the different shots? Should people be holding out for one shot or another shot? Or would you would you take whichever one you have access to first?
2: I would take any of them. I would take I was about to say I'll take them like a shot, but pun intended. <laughs> um, I would take any of them. Um because I haven't actually been offered one because while I while I work as a professor of epidemiology, um I'm not patient facing and I mm. fight disease with equations and stuff. So there are other people who need it much, much more than me. But I would take any of them, because the important thing is they're all of them very good at preventing the most severe outcomes. And I think we have to be frank that there is kind of interesting twin uh, track here. We may well not be able to eradicate this disease. We've only ever eradicated one virus. That was smallpox. We've been struggling to eradicate polio for years. And so we may have to accept that this is something which we keep control of as opposed to completely eradicating it. Now, that doesn't mean never going back to open air quotes normal, uh, but it does mean that it's going to be a complicated public health dance. Mm. And a part of that is going to be on the way to getting everyone protected against the worst consequences of infection. It's a good idea to just limit the amount of virus that is circulating. It's kind of like, you know, if you're waiting for the fire brigade to come to your house, you don't actually fan the flames sure. while you're waiting. Sure. So so you're combining these two things together. I would take any of them. Uh, and I can understand that there's some people who feel like some are more of... It more effective than others because of that headline figures of efficacy. But when it comes down to it, they're all very good at preventing the worst outcomes. And that's what we should all be looking out for.
0: That's the most important thing. Part of that equation for the future, do you think that boosters will be part of that?
2: I think that boosters may be necessary in order to deal with some of the variants that we are looking at at the moment. And we don't know what's going to happen following vaccination when it comes to evolution of the virus. Some people argue that there's going to be evolution to escape vaccine-induced immunity. Yeah, I actually think that's quite unlikely because of the dynamics of the virus within individual hosts, right. but we're going to keep watching carefully to make sure that we understand what's exactly is going on there. I think that boosters are very likely to be at least helpful in some places. We may also have to remember that, looking way down the line, the virus may become locally eliminated, but... Mm. Uh, and then it may be continuing to rage in some parts of the world because, you know, we've been talking about the United States, but there are a, hell of a lot of countries that are not going to be getting a vaccine anytime soon.
0: Mm, that is right. And, and hopefully something like the Johnson & Johnson one shot that does not require the extreme refrigeration will help bring Absolutely.
2: That. Absolutely. Yeah. I have
0: one more vaccine question for you, and then I do want to talk about states really quickly. Um, what about vaccines for pregnant women?
2: Vaccines for pregnant women because pregnant women were not explicitly involved or enrolled in trials, we are in a situation where we we don't have direct evidence, but we don't have any reason to think that there would be um, major impacts thereof. Mm. So um, for women who are breastfeeding, there's absolutely no evidence that... The vaccine or any part of it is going to be able to get in any significant amount into your child, and actually, because maternal antibodies are conveyed in breast milk, if you have antibodies against SARS-CoV-2, you'll then be conveying them to the baby. So, th- the baby will be gaining immunity that sure. way. So, there are there are some circumstances still surrounding individual groups.
0: Sure, I don't know if you've been following this debate. Um, I've been following it because I've spent the pandemic uh, in California, but I've been seeing a lot of chatter and some articles about the difference between how Florida handled the pandemic and how California handled the pandemic and how the numbers were not terribly dissimilar. Have you been following this at all or paying attention to this?
2: I've been following lots of different places. (laughs) Yes. Um,
0: Can you weigh in here?
2: Yeah, there are a number of Misunderstandings about um, what what produces the data that we see, and there are also a lot of very local important things to take into consideration. For instance, California has handled the pandemic in a particular way, partially because of the relatively limited access to um, ICU beds and mm-hmm. the healthcare that's required. So, you know, that's a very different situation from, say, somewhere like where I'm speaking to you from. Um, Boston has a large amount of very good healthcare. So the comparison of Florida and California also has to rest on the fact that you can have a couple of situations. You can either have a very large surge, which then creates a very intense lockdown, or you can have an intense lockdown before a surge and you don't have a surge. Right. In that case, people sometimes say, oh, but lockdowns have got the lockdown didn't prevent the surge in New York City. Well, no, it made it necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the surge made the intervention necessary. Once the interventions are relaxed, then you can start seeing the virus coming back. And I'd actually argue that California and Florida have, in some ways, come to the same conclusion just by just by dancing with the virus in somewhat different ways. What we know is that the number of transmission events that happen is a function of the number of contacts that get made. And different states have done different things which limit those contacts in different ways. But when it comes down to it, those are the highways the virus moves along. And We've seen this, the MMWR, the Morbidity Mortality Weekly Report came out from um, CDC last week, pointing out that mask mandates, um, in-person dining had exactly the impact on subsequent trends of disease that you might expect. And different places can vary with what they have done, how intensely and when. And there could be very, very fine-grained changes within those jurisdictions because Mm. cities can make their own decisions. So what you end up with is a consequence of this kind of patchwork of decisions, which can mean that states as different as Florida and California can end up you know, looking pretty similar. But what they've actually done is they've got there in very different ways. One of them has almost deliberately, as a result of policies that most public health people would not recommend, mishandled the pandemic. And the other just struggled to at different points.
0: Right. It's very complicated, but that was a very clear explanation and I'm grateful for for that. My last question for you, I'm sure we will all see a lot of coverage and read a lot of things and do our own reflecting on this past year and what we have done and what we will be doing to cross this year mark. But I wonder from you what we should be doing to look forward. What should we be doing now to prepare for what's next?
2: Uh, It's hard to sometimes remember that there's a future, isn't it? Um, Well, there is a future. And I think that some people have taken a very optimistic view that the pandemic is an opportunity to examine the various inequities that it has revealed, even as if we didn't know about them all already. I have to say that I am not confident that that is what's going to happen. I think that Some people may find themselves forgetting the trauma of the last year surprisingly quickly once we are able to return to the post-pandemic normal. I do think that we need to reflect upon our responsibilities to the fellow members of our community, what we can do to help them, the role of making tough decisions in a state of uncertainty, and I think that if there's one thing that I really hope that the um, pandemic planning and infectious disease community take away from this, it's recognizing that pandemics are not only caused by flu. Mm. Because we had a lot of preparation for a flu pandemic, which would have a particular set of characteristics. And of course, this is not a flu pandemic, um, it behaves quite differently. It's something depressing to re- reflect upon that the Goldilocks combination. For a virus, if it wants to cause a pandemic, is to be dangerous enough to kill a lot of people, but not so dangerous that you're actually going to make people, you know, take it as seriously as they ought to. Right, right. so just in closing, I mean, I'm going to comment that I I was looking through things I wrote at the start of February last year, and I came across a piece that was never published, which I just, I just called Schrodinger's Pandemic after Schrodinger's Cat. You know, the cat is in the box, it's alive and it's dead. And at that stage, I was already convinced that there would be something that would be called a pandemic, but I didn't know how serious it would be. And if you looked at the numbers at the time, you could just about convince yourself that it would, well, you could not convince yourself it was going to be trivial and ignorable, Mm. but you could convince yourself it wouldn't be that bad. But you could also look at them another way and convince yourself that it would be really very bad indeed. Mm. And there was this position where you were just kind of holding those two equal possibilities in your head while trying to figure out, you know, what to tell people and where to go forward with that. And I think we should be always, we should be looking at the precautionary principle here. And nothing else, it's depressing to think, but the way people have responded to having large numbers of deaths pile up before their eyes doesn't make you feel very confident about dealing with longer term issues like climate change.
0: You are so right. It is a perfect point, not, not necessarily the the most uplifting point to end on, but I think the most thought-provoking one and one that we should all carry forward and really at some point turn our attention to or or right now turn our attention to. Professor, I am so grateful for your brain here uh, over the last year, particularly today, as we got to pick it and, and jump inside of it and your wisdom is invaluable. So thank you so much.
2: Thank you so much. And hopefully if I talk to you again, we'll be able to be a little bit more cheerful. I am in a little bit of an optimism spa at the moment, as a result of the vaccines. But the last year has taught me don't get too optimistic too soon.
0: Well, I think uh, cautiously optimistic feels like a good way to. Yeah, be. yeah, that's good. Thank you again. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you to our guests, Professor William Hanage, and of course, my co-host, Joe Hagan. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive. You can find those on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to our great producer, Brett Fuchs, and the folks at Cadence 13. And of course, thanks to our sponsors. Please support them any way you support this podcast. We'll see you right here next week.